Hey, you're listening to the Church Planners Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Floro. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening today. Uh, Our guest today is Abe Cho. Abe works with Redeemer City to City. He's a senior director of training for North America and for New York City. And he's also an associate pastor at Redeemer East Harlem here in New York City. Uh, In this interview, Abe gives us so much wisdom uh, about spiritual vitality and maintaining uh, a a consistent walk uh, in the midst of pressure that we feel in ministry. Uh, Every single day, Abe is interacting with church planners and provides so much insight for us uh, in the areas of Sabbath, of retreat. And so I just know that today's episode is going to be an encouragement to you. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and hit subscribe and leave a rating or review if this content is helpful for you. That really helps us get this content out there to more church planters so that they can be encouraged. And so thank you for helping us in that way. With that said, let's jump now into our interview with Abe Cho. We have Abe Cho on the podcast. Abe, how are you today, man? Doing great. Glad to be here, man. Yeah. So why don't you share a little bit with uh, with our audience just about what you do with City to City? We talked a little bit about that in the the intro, but share a little bit about what you do with City to City and a little bit of your background with Redeemer, just to give our, our audience a, a better understanding of who you are. Yeah. So the, for the past 14 years, I was a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh Played a variety of pastoral roles there. The last six of those years, I was the senior pastor of Redeemer Eastside. Um, a year ago, I stepped down from that role. I sensed a calling to be more uh, close to training church planters and also felt the calling to be moving more towards the margin, so more diverse communities and more economically diverse, socioeconomically diverse communities. So made the really tough decision last June uh, to step away from a congregation that I loved uh, in order to pursue what I sensed was the next chapter of my ministry. Uh, so with Redeemer City to City, I now have kind of a hybrid role. Uh, about half my job is here in New York City, and I've run the Church Planting Fellows Program, which is where I met you, Jordan. Uh, it's a program for church planters here in New York City that are about a year or two away from planting. And then the other half of my role is with City to City North America, and we work in five other cities in addition to New York, and we're just trying to create a fellowship of diverse leaders in all those cities that are seeking to plant churches that are gospel-centered, that are justice-oriented, that are seeking the renewal of the entire city. Uh, so it's work that I love. We, When I stepped down, I was hoping to be able to stay in New York City, work with diverse church planters in diverse contexts. Um, and still be part of Redeemer, and yeah. God in His grace really answered all those prayers. Actually, so we've been grateful. Tell me, tell us about your your time with Redeemer, and uh, that wasn't a church plant, so you weren't the one that planted Redeemer. So, um, share a little bit about what the the context was there. But uh, why don't you share a little bit about your uh, your time as as senior pastor at Redeemer? Yeah, so when I stepped into uh, Redeemer East Side, so I first came into Redeemer as a whole about. Uh, in 2007, very, very large church. At that point, it's probably five, 6,000 attenders. Uh, when I took over as the senior pastor of Redeemer Eastside, we had kind of gone through a um, multiplication of Redeemer itself. So we multiplied it into three different locations, and I took over the Eastside location. And each of the congregations were charged with planting two more churches, uh, sorry, three more churches in the next 10 years. 
and so from the get-go, we wanted to be a church planting church. Uh, so I took over Redeemer Eastside, which was probably about 1,800 people when I took over. Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a tough challenge, man. I mean, uh, we were facing the challenge of the retiring of the founding pastor, Tim Keller. And, and everyone knows that in a large church, uh, in any church, the founding pastor, when that press steps down, you're looking at a very, very hard transition for the congregation. And that certainly was the case for us. Uh, but it was also a time where we're starting to figure out how do we reinvigorate church planting at the Redeemer churches. Uh, and so it was a time of a lot of pressure. I think one of the things that I discovered was um, there's a lot of external pressures for sure, but there is a mirror image of those external pressures within. So there were all kinds of internal pressures that I had that grew out of my own insecurities, that grew out of my own wounds, uh, that grew out of my own issues that I soon discovered if I wasn't paying attention to the inner pressures or the inner turmoil, uh, the idolatries inside of my heart, uh, that's when the external pressures would really get to me and trip, trip me up. Uh, and so it was a time of, of a lot of transition, uh, a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think a lot of us who took over these Redeemer churches weren't sure if we were the right leader or the kind of leader that we'd be able to take on a challenge like this. I used to always joke that uh, at Redeemer, there were only two preachers. There were there was Tim Keller and not Tim Keller. Yeah. And, uh, you know, being the not Tim Keller for 14 years, uh, there's just a certain amount of challenge that comes along with that. Um, but we did. We were able on the east side to plant two churches. Uh, one was Redeemer East Harlem. And another, what, another one was a church called The Well. And so we um, really leaned into this calling in the, in the midst of a lot of uncertainty uh, to be a church planting church. No, that's great. So you talk a lot about some of those pressures that you were dealing with um, in, in an established church. Uh, but I think I think with church planters, uh, we, we feel pressures in, in different ways. Uh, but but those pressures and those those stressors that we experience can have similar effects to what you uh, I'm sure experienced at Redeemer. What are what are some of the ways that you were able to process through those things? And, and I'm assuming in a healthy way. Uh, maybe you would say <laughs> there's probably some unhealth there too. Um, but but for for somebody like me who you know somebody asks how I'm doing, it's depending on the hours. So some hours I'm great. Some hours, man, I'm on the struggle bus. Uh, how how did you maintain consistency and and maintain um, an authentic walk with Jesus and, and not be, I don't know if embittered is the word, but, but just not grow callous with people. How were how you able to maintain that at Redeemer? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and definitely it was a mixture of health and unhealth. And in some seasons, uh, more health than others. Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, it's tough because as a leader, and this is true for church planters as well, Part of leadership is being a non-anxious presence for others, especially in a time of a lot of change and uncertainty. So the uncertainty that I took on was a season of transition. What's the future going to look like? But for church planters, you're asking a core team or you're asking people to join you on an adventure where you barely really even know what the next turn in the road is going to lead to. And so in a time of a lot of uncertainty, part of the calling of the leader is to be this uh, unanxious presence. Um, but that takes a lot of inner work to be able mm -hmm. to get there. And certainly there are weeks where you feel like you're faking it, where you feel like, well, I just got to show up and then I have to play a role for other people. You know, I have to mm -hmm. be that non-anxious presence for people. 
and there are plenty of weeks where I felt like you just gotta you gotta grit your teeth and uh, be the kind of person that the people around you need you to be. Um, but underneath all that, I think there was a lot of hard excavating that I was trying to do to get underneath my own anxieties. Uh, so mm-hmm. if I'm going to be a non-anxious presence, how do I use the gospel to address the deep anxieties of my own heart? And so there were a lot of different ways to do that. You know, I was seeing a counselor pretty regularly before stepping into the church. I had um, experienced uh, really significant ministry burnout, exhaustion. I was diagnosed with depression. I was put on medications. And that was a season where I first started to see a counselor. Hmm. Uh, but through it all, having a counselor helped me work through what's going on kind of in my heart, the anxiety that's kind of under the surface, the undertow of anxiety in my heart to explore where's that coming from. Um, I think that was a really big piece. Um, I think another piece for me was um, the practice of Sabbath, Hmm. a regular weekly time where I was unplugging from the demands, unplugging from the expectation, um, forcing myself to cease productivity and instead just to be present before God. I think that was a huge part of what I needed to do to, to find that place of, un- of non-anxious presence. Um, and I think I just really had to um, preach the gospel to myself. I mean, we say that all the time at Redeemer to a point where it kind of becomes cliche. But as I was doing the work in counseling and ca- kind of getting at the roots of my fears, my anxiety, if there was anger, if there was frustration, if there was sadness, if there was guilt, whatever the emotion was that was kind of flaring up, the counseling was giving me tools to get to the root of what's underneath that emotion, uh, what's causing that, what are the connections, how did that fear get there, how did that idol underneath all that get there, Um, and then to be able to use the gospel to say, well, what does Jesus think about that, or uh, questions like that really helped me work through a lot of those things. So I'd say those two were huge, the counseling, Um, the Sabbath keeping. And a third one was right around that time, I reconnected with a number of friends that I've had since high school. So we grew up in youth together and we all became Christians around the same time. Four of the five of us became pastors. And around that time, we had reached out to one another because we were all going through our own very hard things. Um, And so we were on a regular monthly call. We did a summer retreat together. And the rekindling of that friendship and accountability was a huge part of it as well. Yeah, there's a lot of what you just said that I'd like to unpack. Um, starting with, with the counseling, uh, I know for me and my story, uh, I started doing counseling um, just about weekly. Uh, it would be three to four times a month through Redeemer. And and I think that moving, moving to the city, doing ministry in the city, um, if that wasn't a regular rhythm for me, I don't know that I would be doing ministry still. I, I really feel like it's been that impactful for me of just being able to, like you said, um, dig out what those idols are in your heart. And um, I mean, there were seasons in there where I'm like, I shouldn't plant a church. I shouldn't be a pastor. And then, um, you know, God just uses that to to work all of those things out in me. So a uh, huge fan of that. Um, obviously, Redeemer has a counseling service that, you can do online. So anybody that's listening could jump on and, and um, request 
uh, counseling sessions online. What what do those sessions look like for you uh, as far as like how often just for the, the person who's who's planting where things are going um, fairly well, but you still need to, to work that out? What what rhythm do you feel like people should have when it comes to counseling? Um, and is there ever a time you're like, you know, you shouldn't count, you shouldn't go to counseling or you're, you're good. You don't need it because a, a lot of times that's what people say too, is, is that they're, they're in a good spot. So how would you speak to, to that? It, it varies, right? The need for counseling and the frequency or regularity of the counseling is going to vary. There are going to be times where you're feeling a certain kind of pressure. And the thing about pressure, especially pressure of leadership, the pressure of leadership is like a crucible that actually uncovers all the cracks in the person that you are, right? So it's not hmm. that leadership creates issues in your life. Leadership is the crucible that reveals some of the issues deep in your heart that have kind of gone unexplored or wounds or brokenness that have kind of been buried under busyness or buried under achievement or buried under no, any number of different things. And the pressures of leadership bring that to the fore. And so I think in times where it's kind of high pressure, high exhaustion, the frequency of counseling going every week, I think is a great thing. And so that's what I was doing um, in some of my harder times. I was going every week and it was probably for several months where it was a, it was a every Monday sort of a thing for me. But after some, some time, we made some breakthroughs. And I also want to let people know that counseling is very, very ordinary. Um, Hmm. Don't expect within two or three sessions for counseling to radically change your life. A lot of it is just plodding through some things that you feel like you already know and having somebody kind of guide you through that process. It's a very ordinary process. But in the course of my counseling, there were a couple of moments where we felt like there was significant kind of breakthrough and clarity. And I felt like I understood my depression. And because I understood it, I knew how to manage it. And so at some point, my uh, counselor was like, Abe, I think you're in a good spot and it might make sense to kind of go to an as needed basis for counseling. And so uh, we shifted over to that. And then there'd be other times where I'm like, ah, I think I could reengage and uh, come back, maybe do weekly again for another couple of months. And so that's been kind of the rhythm right now. I've been in a pretty great spot uh, and I haven't had to um, see my counselor in several months now. That's great. No, that's really helpful. Just thinking about it as being very ordinary. I've not heard it put that way, uh, but that's definitely been been my experience. Uh, but the the quantity of it, uh, I, I feel like, has been seismic in in the shift that I've experienced. So it's a really good word. You talk about Sabbath, and I know some in in some of the sessions with our fellows cohort, you've talked about a retreat that you've taken of like a 36 hour retreat of getting out of town. Why don't you share a little bit about that and what that looks like and, and what that looks like in your, your yearly rhythm? Yeah. I mean, uh, the keeping of the Sabbath has become for me, like the one thing that I recommend almost for everybody. If they say, where do I, where do I get started as far as spiritual practices? Uh, keeping a weekly Sabbath is first. So I always tell people, start with a three-hour stretch per week. Um, if you can't take a break from your work for three hours a week, like you're in a really bad spot. So hmm. start with three hours a week and move up. And the goal is to be able to have one full day where you're non-productive. Um, and it can take time to work up to that. The reason why the weekly Sabbath is so important to me is that for me, it is a it's a reenactment of the gospel. So I tell people that on the one day where I've produced nothing for Jesus, 
is the day where I experience his love most tangibly for me. Mm. And that's what the Sabbath is. And my body and my soul and my mind needs a weekly participation in that, like enactment of that, not just the mental cognitive belief that I'm accepted in Jesus, not because of what I've done, but because of Christ alone. My body needs to enact that. And so that's what the weekly Sabbath is. The day that you produce nothing for Jesus is the day that you experience his love most tangibly. Hmm. So that weekly piece, I think, is important. The story that I like to tell um, is, you know, in New York City, you build a lot of Ikea furniture. And so Hmm. back when we used to, we're getting lots of Ikea furniture when the kids were younger. I'd bring home stuff that I, that I have to assemble and all my kids would be like, oh, dad, can we help you? Can we help you? And then inside I'm like, do you have to? Because it'll be way faster if I do this myself. But they're like, dad, can we help you? And I'm like, of course, come and help. And they're picking up all the tools in the wrong way. They're stripping all the bolts. They're putting the wrong pieces and the wrong ends together. And they're like, dad, aren't we doing a great job? And I'm like, you guys are doing a great job. But then at some point I kind of run out of patience and I say, hey, kids, you guys have done such a great job. You must be so tired. Why don't you go off and play and daddy will finish the job. And I like to tell planters that that's what the Sabbath is. It's God saying, Abe, you've been so helpful. You've done a great job. But you must be tired. Why don't you go play and daddy will finish the job. And I love that because it helps me from it keeps me from uh, taking myself too seriously. It reminds me that it's the father's work that we participate in. And it reminds me that sometimes our impulse to be super busy, to be constantly doing something may actually be getting in the way more uh, than being all that helpful uh, to the work of the spirit. And so those are the, the kinds of concepts that helps me to keep a weekly Sabbath, Sabbath, especially in seasons when I feel extremely busy. And if church planters are nothing, if not busy, there's always more that could be done. There's always another thing that you could be doing in your neighborhood or with your community. And so for me, the keeping of the weekly Sabbath, starting with three hours a week and building up to a, a full day a week is huge. But the other rhythm that I built in uh, for Sabbath was also a monthly reading day. So one day a week, it was just like eight hours. So drop the kids off at school, I'd go away, and it was a full day of study, and then I'd come back in time for dinner. Uh, That was like a monthly thing. I would do that one Thursday a month. Um, And then the the retreat that you referenced was something that I did twice a year. So um, during the Advent season and during the Lent season, I would take essentially a 30-hour retreat. So I would take the kids to school, drop them off by, let's just call it 8 a.m., and then I'd go away out of the city and I'd be back by dinner time the next day. So I'd only mm-hmm. be missing one school pickup, one dinner, one bedtime and one drop off. And then oh, I guess another pickup and then I'd be back back in time for dinner the next day. And so what I would do is is we would have congregants who would have uh, homes or small places outside of the city. And so they would generously allow me to use it. I would take a stack of books that I've been meaning to read. I would take a journal. I would take my Bible. And I try to spend as much time as I could in scripture, try to read one book of the Bible, at least uh, the entire time, journal as much as I could. But some days it would just be going up and taking a nap. Um, Other days would be going up and going for a run. Um, It was a lot of different sorts of things that just allowed me to unplug 
But because it was in a retreat environment, I found myself doing all of those things in the presence of God. Like I felt very aware of the fact that even when I fell asleep on the couch while reading the Bible, <laughs> you know, I, I fell asleep in the presence of God, that God's yeah. God was smiling upon his son, even as, even as I fell asleep on the couch to take my nap. Uh, and so those 30 hour retreats, Advent and Lent, uh, sometimes busy times for pastors uh, were really life giving. There'd be sometimes my younger brother's a pastor that I would invite him to come join me. And so the two of us would get together and uh, we'd read our own book, study, we'd share what we're learning. We'd laugh, we'd catch up. Uh, we'd just do the stupid kind of things that brothers do to each other. Uh, and it would just be kind of an overnight. And so they were, they were really, really life-giving times for me. So it was like a wow. weekly Sabbath, a monthly study day, and then twice a year personal retreat. That's good. Yeah, for me, um, with with Sabbath, one thing I've noticed is I have a hard time turning stuff off to where, uh, especially in the city, I've tried going, tried going to the park and walking around the park and doing stuff there. I've gone to uh, the library um, in, in Midtown and tried to sit there and uh, and I've just had a hard time shutting things off, turning off my brain. Um, you know, I, I want to get out of my apartment because I office out of my apartment. And so, um, I don't feel like I can, I can turn off there. Uh, do you have any suggestions or recommendations for me, uh, in, in, in how I can better practice Sabbath or is that just an obstacle that's going to be there that I just got to push through? Yeah. Well, I would say that obstacle is always there. I, I think that obstacle has become far harder post pandemic. So we just went through like a year and a half, two years where like all we had was our devices. Like our devices became the way that we connected to our friends. Like, like it was the only lifeline into the world outside. And so even for me, post pandemic, it's way harder for me to sit down and read a paper book without a fidget, the, this impulse to pick up my phone to check what's going on and that sort of thing. I would say it's at least two to three times harder post pandemic for me than beforehand. So it's a real challenge. Um, I think the best way to address that is in your Sabbath, find something that's active to do that engages both your mind and your body. And so for us, for a long time, this, we picked this up during the pandemic. And on the Sabbath, the way that we would start is that we would go climbing at, a, at our local climbing gym. And what that did was, you know, when you're climbing, a wall and you're only supposed to use certain handholds and footholds. It's kind of like a puzzle that's set up before you. So you have to engage your mind to figure out how do I physically, you know, go up this path here, but it's also very physically exerting. And so your body's tired. You're using muscles in your body that you normally don't use. And so we would do that. I would take my, my boy, three boys. I've got a daughter and three boys and the, the three boys would want to come along with me. And we do that for about an hour. And for that hour, I wouldn't touch my phone. And I wouldn't think about anything else because my mind needed to be engaged in solving a new problem, solving a new puzzle. Uh, and so that was a really, really great Sabbath practice. And then that helped me to downshift a lot so that as I went into the other hours, whether it would be going for a walk or reading a book or whatever else my Sabbath, Sabbath practice would involve, I had already downshifted from that kind of that adrenaline rush of connection or that adrenaline adrenaline rush of productivity, but it required something that fully engaged my mind and body in a different kind of a way. These days, uh, I run more. And so a lot of times my Sabbath will start with a long run 
where I'm still listening to music or something like that, but it's not the same kind of productivity buzz that I think we can all get, our brains can get very addicted to. No, that's really helpful. Just thinking through, and, and I'm going back to even what you said about counseling, where it sounds like Sabbath is also very ordinary. Like we, we can try to build it up to be this big spiritual thing, um, but it's it's it can be very ordinary and that's okay. I want to shift a little bit and pivot. I want to get your thoughts on on incarnational ministry and and how to um, really listen to the neighborhood, the community that you're in, and and plant a church that's for the neighborhood and with the neighborhood. Um, and and I know that's kind of a general question, but I'd love to get your thoughts. One of the questions that we use in fellows that I all that I love and I've come back to so time and time again when it comes to incarnational ministry is the question. If Jesus were to walk around in your neighborhood, where would he go that you haven't gone? And where what would he see that you haven't seen? Or maybe another way to ask it is if you were to follow Jesus walking around your neighborhood, where would he where would he take you and what would he uh, what would he show you? And that question to me just makes that the the concept of incarnational ministry really concrete. And I think what I love about it is it also emphasizes the role of the planter in seeking to incarnate Christ's love in your neighborhood. Where would he go? What would he see? Who would he be with? Um, What's the manner in in which he would respond to things that he sees in your neighborhood? And so I love that question because it helps to really get the notion of incarnational ministry concrete and contextual for people. I think another key for incarnational ministry is basically a theology of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm Presbyterian, and so we, you know, we're not known for our theology of the Holy Spirit, though I do think we're shortchanged there. I think we have a robust <laughs> theology of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have a but, robust theology of everything as a Presbyterian. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whether we have a robust experience of the Holy Spirit, that remains maybe there the question, go. right? Exactly. But I think when it comes to the Holy Spirit, like a theology of the Holy Spirit, it's like, do we believe that the Spirit of God is actively at work in our neighborhoods, even when we're not the ones doing the work? Hmm. So do we believe in the Holy Spirit? Do we believe the Holy Spirit blows where he wills, does what he does? Do we believe the Holy Spirit does things apart from me? And if our answer to those questions is yes, when we go out into our neighborhoods, Part of the calling, I think, of a church planter is to cultivate eyes that see what is the Spirit doing? What has the Spirit been doing for years, decades, generations before a church planter ever arrives in a neighborhood? If our assumption is God has already been at work here in this neighborhood. I love in Acts where it says that no matter where you go, God has not left himself without a witness. And so if we take God at his word, then we have to assume that God is already present, already active, already at work, and has been so for hundreds and hundreds of years in this neighborhood before I ever arrive. If that's our assumption or a posture, then as church planters, we come in and we say, I need eyes to see what the spirit of God is doing. And I need to join God in what he's already been up to. And oftentimes that means I need to join what other people have already been doing in my neighborhood to join forces to come in behind. And I think if we have that assumption that the spirit is at work, I'm just not paying attention. 
it changes our posture to wanting to be present where the spirit is already at work. And so I think that to some degree is a huge part of incarnation. The other thing I love about incarnational ministry is when you think about the incarnation, the first 30 years of Jesus's incarnate life was lived in complete obscurity. Or another way to think about it, for 30 years, people lived next door to the eternal son of God, the prince of peace himself, and they had no clue. Uh, He was, there were years of obscurity. There were years of presence, of observation. There were years of learning. Uh, There were years of immersion. Uh, Long before Jesus began his public ministry, and I think with incarnational ministry, there's all, it, it helps us to push back against the impulse to say, I've got to come in with kind of guns ablaze and I've got to change this neighborhood to more, how do I enter in and how do I commit to some time of obscurity so that I can listen, I can pay attention, I can observe, I can see things that maybe I didn't have eyes to see before. I can really enter in and become a neighbor uh, long before people see me even as a church planter. There's something really beautiful about that, too, that I think uh, really transforms the way people think about church planting. Well, Abe, I I feel like we could go on for a couple hours, really, just hearing your wisdom. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and sharing with us on the podcast. Uh, what are some ways that uh, our listeners can connect with you? I know you've got a blog that you write for. You're connected with City to City. But what are ways that they can connect with you and follow you on uh, on the interwebs. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Yeah, we I write at a website called Unt- UntilZion.com. So me and my friend Justin Adore, we're really partners in crime up here in East Harlem. So UntilZion.com is a great place. You can sign, subscribe to our newsletter there. On Twitter, my handle is at Abraham Cho. Uh, Facebook, it's Facebook.com slash Abraham Cho. And then Instagram, I think I'm Abraham underscore Cho. So uh, all pretty straightforward. Uh, but love being with you. I love the work that you're doing and I uh, love the work you're doing in Sunnyside. So uh, grateful for partnership and friendship, man. This has been great. Absolutely, man. Well, thank you for coming on and uh, we'll have to have you on again soon. Would love that. Man, I love Abe Cho. And I know after that conversation, you now love Abe Cho as well. Such an encouragement. The the fellows program that he continually referenced uh, was a group of about 12 church planters and here here in New York City uh, that that just went through some training under the Redeemer City to City and and Abe and some others led those groups and led those conversations. And it was so helpful for us with that content. And so we're going to I'm going to put in some of the show notes, just some some different links that you can go to through Redeemer City to Cities. ecosystem of articles and blogs and talks and trainings that I know are going to be really helpful to you. And uh, Abe does such a great job with all of that. Uh, But in that conversation, man, there was so much there. I think the idea of counseling, just going into it as ordinary. I think sometimes we go into counseling just expecting there to be this this massive breakthrough every single time and that's just not the case but but just working through that and being consistent through that is so important for church planters in the the work that we're doing so man such a great conversation so much that that i'd love to 
just just continue to talk about but we just don't have time but uh, i would encourage you share this episode with other church planners that you know that, that will benefit from this content and if you've not done so already jump on and join our facebook community the church planters community we'd love for you to start contributing into that conversation until next week i'm jordan floro thank you for listening to the church planters podcast